I'm uh, really excited today on multiple levels to introduce our guest preacher, Rev. Rev. Andrew Goizueta. Um, it's part of a bigger series. Our uh, elders in April had a vision retreat asking God the question, what, what are you calling in town to be and do and focus on in the next season of our life together over the next several years? And the clear answer emerging from that vision retreat among our elders was a focus on sharing uh, the love of Jesus with people that we know, introducing people we already know who haven't experienced the love of Jesus to his love so that more and more people, men and women and boys and girls, uh, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our classrooms, everywhere we live, work, play, do life, can come to know Jesus. Uh, we don't feel like we're especially good at that as a church. We need help. We need supernatural help. The Holy Spirit's going to have to do something big so that we can lean into that vision over the next several years. We'll be talking more about it uh, in the coming months, but one thing we decided to do in this year is to invite guest preachers who live this calling who understand what it's like, who are on the front lines of uh, sharing faith in Jesus with people that they know and training others to do that day by day and not doing it as one more thing I have to do, but as the overflow of who I am because of Jesus. Practicing this out of our identity in Christ, not out of performance, not out of obligation. And Andrew is a person like that. You heard a church planter from California in September. Lance Lewis was with us. Our founding pastor, Bob Cargo, was with us a few weeks ago to celebrate our 40th anniversary and uh, to breathe new life again of this sense of outreach to our neighbors. Andrew is going to bring the same kind of heart to us this morning. He's been a close friend of our family for many years, and we are delighted to have Andrew with us today. I'll let Andrew explain to you why no buildings in Atlanta are named after him. <laughs> Andrew, thanks for being with us. <laughs> Go get him, Tiger. <laughs> a little inside joke there. Uh, thank you, Jimmy. It's good to be with you all this morning. As Jimmy mentioned, my name is Andrew Goisweta. And Jimmy's right, there's, there's no connection between me and a school of business at Emory, unfortunately. I've got no connections to Coca-Cola CEOs. Um, I spell my last name differently with a Y instead of an I, and that one vowel has made a huge difference, I, I would say, for me <laughs> and how my life has turned out. I'm not salty about it whatsoever. Um, but yes, I am, uh, I'm the RUF campus minister, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, um, up at Davidson College, which is a small liberal arts school just north of Charlotte. And I've been told that there are some college students who are involved with RUF here at InTown. Are you all here this morning? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Glad to have you in the house. Uh, any, any RUF alumni in the room? Yeah. Any, any parents of college students that are involved in RUF? Nice. Awesome. I'm going to be preaching to this side of the room this morning. Um, no, but it's good to be among family uh, this morning. And e I would say, even if you have no connection whatsoever to RUF, um, we're part of an even greater family. 
uh, the family of God. And so it's good to be among brothers and sisters this morning. In a second, Emily's going to come and read the passage for us. We're going to be in John chapter 4 this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn there with me. Uh, but before Emily comes up, I want to I mention this, and this will kind of bring us into God's Word this morning. Not too long ago, a sophomore at Davidson came up to me and he said, Andrew, uh, I grew up going to church on Sundays, but I've never really read the Bible, um, but I want to. I want to start reading the Bible. But it's so big, I don't, I don't know where to begin. Where should I start? And I don't know how you would answer that question, but in that moment, the way I answered it was, uh, well, why don't you start with the Gospel of John? And the reason why I pointed him to this Gospel uh, is that uh, John is explicit about the message of his book. He lets you know exactly why he's writing. And his message, well, it's, it's kind of like that banner that Ted Lasso put over his, uh, his office door, you know, that in that bright yellow paper with those blue letters, one word, believe. And that's the message of John's gospel, believe. In particular, John says, look, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, you might have life in his name. And as we come to John chapter 4, um, I want you to imagine that you're, you've been reading along from the very first verse in John 1. And if that's, your, if that's the case, if you've been reading along in chapters 1 through 3, you would have you would have, would have come across this message again and again. You'd have heard things like, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the entryway into the kingdom of heaven, into eternal life. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Believe in him. And so, here in John 4, we hear that message again. But we also hear a somewhat different note, a slightly different note as well, and it's a little bit surprising. What note is that that we hear? Well, I want to invite Emily to come up and read God's word for us. This is John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. This morning's scripture lesson comes from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman came from Samaria, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with, with some Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, 
You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Emily. I'd invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, you tell us that your word doesn't return empty to you, and that it always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. And so we ask that you would be true to your promise this morning. Would you accomplish your purposes in us and among us this morning, through your word and by your spirit? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are the type that likes to take notes um, while you're listening to a sermon, I've got three points for you this morning. I know, shocker, right? Uh, first, I want us to see from this story that Jesus embraced our limitations. So I want us to see that Jesus embraced our limitations. Second, I want us to ask the question, why? Why did Jesus embrace our limitations? And then third and finally, I want us to ask, what difference does any of that make to how we go about our day-to-day -day lives. So let's just jump right in together. The first point, I want us to see that Jesus embraced our limitations. Look back again over at the first seven verses that Emily read for us. 
the story begins with Jesus trying to get from Judea, which is in the south of the land of Israel, up to Galilee in the north. And in order to do so, verse 4 says that he had to pass through Samaria. And so if today, if you were to make that journey by car or by bus, it would take you an hour, maybe an hour and a half at the most. And that's not even driving too fast. But back in that day, for Jesus and the disciples, who were not traveling by car or by bus, who were walking by foot over roads and paths that were not nicely paved with asphalt, uh, in a hot and arid Mediterranean climate, uh, up and over and down and through hills and valleys, it would have taken them two to three days of fairly strenuous hiking. So we're not too, too surprised um, when we read in verses 5 and 6 that Jesus was so wearied and tired and worn out from that journey that he stopped at the halfway point, roughly 30 miles into his journey. He stopped at the halfway point with his disciples to sit and rest at a well. And verse 7 shows us that Jesus was thirsty too because he he was thirsty enough to ask a Samaritan woman to give him a drink. And so especially if you've heard this story before, uh, none of those details really shock us. None of them really surprise us. But they should. Because again, what, what John has been saying to us this whole time, what John is revealing to us is that is that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so here in chapter 4, we see that in Jesus, God got wearied, tired, worn out. In Jesus, the preexistent word, the logos, the one through whom all things were made, the great I am, the God of the entire universe, grew thirsty, needed a drink of water. In Jesus, Yahweh had to stop and rest a while. And if you think about that, that's crazy, isn't it? Jesus, though he was fully God, he didn't flee from his physical needs and limitations. He embraced them. And that's a big deal. You might think about it this way. Uh, I'm sure many of you have played a video game or two in the past, right? Um, some of you, I, I would imagine, have played video games that had uh, you know, cheat codes that were kind of built into the game, coded into the game, right? Yeah. I, I mean, most games do have them, right? You don't have to look too far to find them. And, and some of you who have played those games, you admit it now, you've even used those cheat codes from time to time, right? I mean, a recent survey, I'm not making this up, 57% of all gamers have used cheat codes at some point. What qualifies as a gamer, I don't know, but the majority of you all have cheated at video games. So, um, and look, you know, I have sympathy for you. It's hard not to use a cheat code when you're playing a video game, especially if you come to a really hard level that you can't get past or you come up against you know, this big major boss and try as you might, you can't defeat him. You just keep getting defeated, killed, right? And so it's, it's hard to resist you know, punching in a cheat code to you know, like bring your health back to full health. 
so that you can make it through, make it beyond that hard level or that, that big boss. Um, maybe you've even used uh, kind of the all-powerful cheat code known as God Mode, where it doesn't just restore you to full health, but it actually makes it impossible for you to lose health. It makes you invincible, right? And so if you do this, if you use a God Mode in a video game, Look, it's super convenient. You don't have to punch in a single, another code at all. You can just go right through. It's super efficient. You could probably beat the game in record time, right? So it's tempting. Here's what I want you to consider this morning, all you gamers and all you cheaters. I want you to consider this. Jesus had all the cheat codes for life at his disposal but he didn't use them. In fact, where you or I might be tempted to use a cheat code or turn on God mode, Jesus didn't. He didn't take any shortcuts. I mean, think about it. Jesus could have, being fully God, he could have just up and teleported himself and the disciples from Judea up to Galilee without having to pass through the region of Samaria. He could have done that. Right? And you know, that would have been tempting. I'm sure if the disciples knew that that was a possibility, they would have preferred that. Right? It would have saved them all that time, all that energy. It would have even spared them from having to interact with those unclean Samaritans, those idolatrous Samaritans. Right? So Jesus could have done that. He didn't. Not only that, you know, as they worked, walked on this journey and got tired and hungry, Jesus could have called down food from heaven, right? He could have called down, you know, water and bread to sustain them. He, being God, he could have called down, like, Gatorade and an RX bar for everyone, or Celsius and a Snickers. Like, that, that's not beyond his power. But he didn't do any of that. Why not? It's because Jesus embraced his and our physical human limitations. He didn't despise or, re or regret his human nature with all of its needs, with all of its neediness. He loved it. He loved his human nature. Jesus re resisted the convenience and the efficiency of being fully God for the inconvenience and inefficiency of being fully human. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, the scripture says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And so this naturally brings us to our second point, which is the question, why? Why did Jesus embrace our humanity and our limitations? And the answer that the story gives us, the answer from John 4 is, had Jesus not embraced his limitations, had he not grown tired and hungry and had to stop, salvation would not have come to these people in Samaria. Or to put it in a different way, because Jesus grew tired and thirsty and needed to rest, salvation came to the town of Sychar. Let's, let's jump back into the story together. Let's revisit it together. It begins with Jesus meeting this woman at the well. Now, this woman didn't go to the well that day 
looking for God, looking for salvation, she went looking for water, right? And, uh, and she did so quietly by herself. The scripture says that, that she went at the sixth hour, which was noon, in the middle of the day. That's strange. That's odd. At that time, in, at that, in that time, women would usually go to the well in the morning to beat the heat of the day, never by themselves, lest they open themselves up to dangers, wild beasts, people that want to do them hard, harm. They would go together as a group. And so here we see this woman going by herself alone at the hottest point of the day when the sun is highest. And it makes us ask, why? Why would she do that? And as we read the rest of the story, we can gather that it was likely because she was a social outcast, most likely due to this notorious reputation she had in town. And so we can, we can surmise that she went alone to the well to avoid the judgment, the scorn, or maybe just even those glances from the other women. But then at the well, she meets Jesus, and he offers her living water, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he goes on to tell her, in, in her own words, all that she ever did. And he reveals to her that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ. And so what does the woman do? If you look at verses 28 and 29, we see that the woman, she actually leaves her water jar there at the well. I just think that's such an interesting little detail that John provides for us. I mean, that was the whole reason she went out to the well to begin with. I guess she's found another greater mission and purpose. She, she leaves the water jar there at the well, and then she goes back into town and invites all the townspeople, the very people she was trying to avoid, right? She invites them to come with her to go and meet Jesus. And they did. Verse 30 says that they went out of the town and were coming to him. And if you were to keep reading the story, uh, beyond the verse 30 that Emily read, if you were to look at verse 39, it says that, that many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of this woman's testimony. And so here's the point. Had Jesus not been a human being with human needs and human limitations, or had he denied and put aside his humanity out of convenience or efficiency, this woman and her neighbors would not have experienced salvation, the salvation that only Jesus provides. But it goes beyond that. Had Jesus put aside his humanity? Had he not embraced his limitations? Not only would these people in first century Samaria have missed out on salvation, but you and I would miss out on salvation too. Because you see, Jesus had to be human in order to redeem humanity. Jesus had to be a man in order to save mankind. And that right there sets Christianity apart from every other religion, every other worldview, every other philosophy. Because every other kind of system of belief 
says some form, some version of, look, you need to transcend your humanity in order to be saved. You need to put aside, deny your human limitations in order to experience the divine, the good life, fulfillment. I mean, just just think about it. We're told in other man-made religions that you need to acquire that that secret knowledge that, that few other people acquire. Or you need to exercise just complete and total self-denial, extreme asceticism, in order to experience the good life. You have to deny or, or you have to empty yourself of all desires, all attachments. Or you have to perform this long list of religious rites and rituals. Or you have to develop and maintain great morals and ethics and values. Or you have to transcend your your background, your biology, and decide for yourself who you really are. You see, in all these things, the message is you need to escape or transcend your humanity, your, your limitations, your finiteness. But this is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it's not your humanity that separates you from the divine, from God, but your sin. Your sin's the problem, not your humanity. Jesus didn't come to save you from your humanity. humanity. He came to save you from the sin which mars your humanity. This is why the Bible says that he had to be made like us in every way except for sin. Jesus entered our humanity in order to restore our humanity from the inside out. He came to affirm, renew, and renew the dignity that we were all created with and to put away all of our sin which defaces that created dignity. Think about it this way. We are all, each and every one of us, you and me alike, we are all broken mirrors, imperfectly reflecting the image of God, our creator. Jesus came to put those broken pieces together again so that we might better reflect God in all of his goodness, all of his loving kindness, all of his mercy, all of his grace, all of his truth. It's exactly what Jesus did for the woman at the well. And that's what he does for everyone and anyone who acknowledges him as the Messiah, the Christ. Before we move on to our last point, uh, let me just summarize what we've been talking about in this way. All other religions, including a form of works-based Christianity, that could be more progressive works-based Christianity, that could be more conservative works-based Christianity. But all other religions put the emphasis on our great search for God, or our great search for the divine, or our great search for the good life. Only Christ-centered, only cruciform biblical Christianity puts the emphasis on God's great search for us. And it's right here in John chapter 4. Because this morning's passage shows us that in Jesus, a first century Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, in, in this man, God went looking for a notorious Samaritan woman and her idolatrous neighbors. 
And in Jesus, God is looking for notorious and idolatrous men and women, boys and girls, like you and like me. So this naturally brings us to our last point. What difference does any of this make in our day-to-day lives? And I want to leave you with really three practical takeaways, three practical changes, three, three differences. The first of the three is this. We need to see from this story that matter matters. Matter matters. You've maybe heard something, I know I have, um, you've maybe heard something like this from a friend or a neighbor or a family member um, who says something along the lines of, uh, the real you is not who you are on the outside, but who you are on the inside. Or maybe you've heard someone once say, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. Have you heard anyone say something like that to you? If not, maybe you know the words of a diminutive green Jedi master who once told his apprentice training in the Dagobah system, I won't do the voice, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. If you've heard expressions like these, um, and, and, you're, and you're a student of the scriptures, then you know that each of these sayings are only half right. They're only half true. Yes, you are who you are on the inside. Yes, you are a soul. Yes, in a sense, you are luminous beings. But you are also this crude matter. You are also a body. That's who you are. You are also who you are on the outside. Uh, As one of of my seminary professors uh, would say, um, you are a psychosomatic unity. Those are just the Greek words for mind-body. You you are a mind-body nexus, a mind-body fusion, right? A soul-body nexus. People or, or little green Jedi masters who, who create a sharp distinction between the spiritual and the physical are taking cues more so from platonic dualism than from the scriptures. Now, let me pause and just say that I'm sure there's at least one person in the room who kind of feels like pushing back a little bit. Maybe you're, maybe you're, here, sitting, maybe you're sitting here thinking, wait a second, Andrew, doesn't the Bible teach us that humans are made up of two separate and distinct parts, right? Like a soul and a body. Doesn't the Bible teach that? I mean, doesn't Jesus say to the thief at the cro- on the cross, the dying thief, doesn't he say, today you will be with me in paradise? Suggesting that he's going to exist with Jesus beyond his physical body? Or doesn't Paul say that he'd rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord? Don't, doesn't the scripture say that we're kind of two halves, right? If you're thinking along these lines, my, um, my loving response to you is this. I would just say, beware of basing your argument on the nature of being human on death. Death is inherently unnatural, abnormal, absurd. And the scriptures call death our enemy, the last enemy which Jesus came to overthrow and to destroy, right? 
Instead of taking your cues on the nature of humanity from death, I would encourage you, take your cues from creation, and especially the new creation in Christ. Think about it this way. How was Jesus raised? Was he raised just a soul, just a spirit? No. He was raised a new man, a whole man, a glorified body. And his glorified body is the first fruits of our future resurrected glorified bodies, bodies that you could see and touch and handle. And so here's the point. The Bible teaches that what we do in, with, and to our bodies matters to God because he loves us and we belong to him. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So that's the first takeaway. Matter matters. The second takeaway is this. We need to embrace our need. We need to embrace our need. And look, let's just be honest. We all hate feeling needy, right? Uh, I had a friend recently say, uh, the word needy, is the sweatiest, clammiest word in the English language. You're so needy, right? If, if someone calls you needy, it's like the worst insult there could ever be. We hate being needy. We hate feeling needy. If we don't like a, a certain person, we might say, he is so needy. She is so needy, right? We like to feel capable. We don't like to feel needy. We like to feel dependent, not, or independent, not dependent. But this story shows us that Jesus experienced need. Might even say Jesus was needy. He needed rest. He needed water. He needed food. You go beyond this story, he needed times of prayer and solitude. He, he needed to be in his father's house. He needed to be uh, about his father's business. Jesus was needy. In fact, Jesus was the neediest human being there ever was. You think about it. Jesus once said, I can do nothing on my own. I can only do what I see my father doing. If you were to go out to lunch after this and overhear a 30-something-year-old adult male say out loud, I can't do anything on my own. I can only do what I see my daddy doing. You would think, this guy needs to grow up, right? He's so needy. But Jesus said that. Those words came out of his mouth. He was the most dependent human being there ever was. And that's the difference between Jesus and us. Jesus was never ashamed of his need. He never repented of his complete and utter dependence upon his father. He never tried to hide or flee his natural human limitations. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I want to say to you, look, we don't need to repent of our need, our limitations, our finiteness. We don't need to repent of our inability to do everything, be everywhere, know everything. Because Jesus didn't come to make us more than human. He came to make us more human. And to be a human being is to be 
in need. So embrace your need. Embrace your limitations. As one author puts it, the Christian life and Christian ministry, they're an apprenticeship with Jesus in recovering our humanity and through the Spirit helping our neighbor do the same. So would you apprentice with Jesus? Would you apprentice with him in, in embracing your limitations, embracing your humanity, embracing your need? And through the Spirit, would you go help others to do the same? So matter matters, need to embrace your need. And then finally, this, this portion of God's Word shows us that worship involves all of life. Take a second, let me ask you this. When do you feel most spiritual? Or when do you feel closest to God? You know, as I reflect on those questions, for me, you know, there's a long list of things, but maybe it's like for you, maybe it's when you've had a really good quiet time in the morning. Or maybe it's when you are actually staying on top of your Bible reading plan. Maybe you feel closest to God when you're out in the community serving others. Maybe it's when you've uh, racked up successive weeks and months of fighting off that particular sin and, some, and temptation with some measure of success. Maybe it's when you've just come back from an amazing Christian retreat. When do you feel closest to God? Look, all of those things are good and helpful. I'm not, I'm not speaking ill of any of that. But if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ— right? If you are in Christ and he is in you, then I want to remind you of something. You are no closer to God reading your Bible than when you're brushing your teeth. You're no closer to God when you're fasting than when you're folding laundry. You're no closer to him when you're praying than when you're playing pickleball or golf or video games. Why is that? How can I say that? I can say that because in Jesus, the infinite God became a finite human being to be with you and me. He entered his creation to come that close to us. And now, this side of the cross and empty tomb and his ascension, he has poured out his own spirit upon us to dwell within us and among us. You can't get closer to God than that. If that's true, worship really does involve all of our lives, all of our existence. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not a square inch of all creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not claim mine. Mine. So brothers and sisters, Worship God not in spite of your physical needs and limitations, but in them and through them. Worship God not only on Sunday mornings, but also on Monday mornings when you're stuck in traffic on the way to work. And worship him on Wednesday afternoons when you're waiting in the carpool pickup line. Or on Friday afternoons when you're at the soccer field watching your kids play. Jesus did not come to make us more than human. He came to make us more human. So glorify God in your body. Would you pray with me?
Father in heaven, you have called upon us, your people, to love you, the Lord, with all of who we are, with, with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. And so would you, Lord, pour out your spirit upon us and help us to do just that? Lord, would you help us to, to see the ways that you have been searching for us our entire lives? And would you fill us with even more wonder and awe over your grace and mercy and love toward us? Draw us deeper and deeper into the life of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.